0: Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we have come to you after a very powerful morning. We feel so so challenged by the messages that were shared today. And Lord, it's uh, the afternoon, it's a warm room, we just had a wonderful lunch, and we'd love to take a nap. But Lord, you have a special message for us this afternoon, and so we really need your spirit to give us strength. We need your angels whether human or otherwise, to to nudge us if we're falling asleep. But, Lord, we really need good, clear perception because I believe that there are people in this room who are hurting and who need freedom from addictions. And, Lord, we need to be able to share that hope with everyone that we meet. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for leading and blessing in this, this time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, understanding addictions. So, the former US Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, um, he was the US Surgeon General last year. He uh, was um, challenged by one of his nurses when he switched from being a physician in a hospital to working for the US government. And his challenge from the nurse was, if there is one thing that you do, if there is one thing that you do, please talk about addictions. Please, please, please do something about addictions. And so last year in November, he and his uh, office came out with this report, Facing Addiction in America the certain general's report on alcohol, drugs, and health. Now, they focused on those substance, those major substance um, addictions that we're all familiar with. But some of the principles that he shares are applicable across to all addictions. But this really underscores the importance of this issue in our world today. And in in our own neighborhoods, certainly, Perhaps even in our own churches and our own homes. Here's something of what the report says: Substance use disorders represent one of the most pressing public health crises of our time. What is a crisis? It's a an event or a uh, a time or um, a, a period of just absolute chaos, right, where there's desperation to some extent, to a great extent. So it is a public health crisis. We must help everyone see that addiction is not what? It's not a character flaw. It is a, what is this, chronic illness. What is a chronic illness? Chronic illness is something that basically you're dealing with for a lifetime when we're talking from a clinical perspective. Some of the chronic illnesses we hear about are diabetes, uh, heart disease, hypertension, okay? So they are equating addiction with all of these other health problems. And we'll see some data that's very interesting as we compare them. It is a chronic illness that we must approach with the same skill and compassion with which we approach, there we go, heart disease, diabetes, cancer. When you learn, I'm sure everybody in this room has been touched in some way by cancer. Someone you know, a friend, a coworker, a friend's friend, somebody you know has been diagnosed with cancer. What does your heart do when you hear that? When you find out someone has cancer, doesn't your, it hurts. It's extremely painful and there's a sense of hopelessness. But why is it when we find out that someone has an addiction, we say, well, why can't they just stop? Why can't they just get themselves together? Why do we have this duplicity? in our emotional response to individuals facing this chronic illness. Going on, the report says, recovery has many pathways that should be tailored to the unique cultural values and psychological and behavioral need- health needs of each individual. So here they're saying that this problem of addiction, there are cultural issues, there are psychological issues, and behavioral health issues, and that these are specific to each individual. And these involve a combination of medication, counseling, and social support. We're going to see social support come up over and over again. Um, Not because I intentionally did that, but simply that's just what the data shows. That's what we are seeing is that addiction really to a large extent is a social issue. Above all, we can never forget that the faces of substance use disorders are real people. We sometimes look past the person and we get more concerned about the behavior or what they're doing or not doing. But we have to remember that these are real people. They are a beloved family member, a friend, a colleague, and even ourselves how we respond to this crisis is a moral test for America. So he is saying that this is a moral issue for our nation. So how big is the addiction problem? So this is a research study that was published in 2011. So it's a few years ago. So you have to think, well, is the problem better? Have things gotten better? Is it worse, or has there been no change, right? Now, intuition will probably tell you that it's not better. It is worse. So in this research, what they did was they looked at 11 different types of addictions, and here's another key point for us to to look at here. We'll talk about this more. 11 different types of addictions. Now, the first few, we're going to say, oh, yeah, of course you're going to look at that. Tobacco. Alcohol, illicit drugs, right? We know those are problems. But look at the other ones they said. Eating, gambling, Internet. We don't have Internet here where we are today. (laughs) Praise the Lord. We're breaking our addictions. Okay, Internet. Love, sex, exercise. Okay. Work and shopping. Did we hear about shopping this morning? Anybody testifying of some conviction going on? Shopping. So these 11 addictions that they looked at, and what they did was they took a lot of different studies that had been published. And what they wanted to see is, well, how many people are actually struggling with these addictions in the U.S., how many adults specifically, they found that within a one-year period, within any given one-year period, 47% of adults have signs of one of these addictions, or maybe more. 47. To make that real, I'm just going to ask everybody from this chair over, if you could all stand up. Even in the back, just stand up. Okay, That's about 50% of this room. That is how many people would be suffering from from an addiction. Now extrapolate this to your church, to your community, to your state, to the country, to the world. Okay, thank you so much. So we we mentioned briefly that there are different types of addictions. Let's look at this a little bit more. We do have the substance abuse addictions, and these are, again, the typical ones that we think of, the tobacco, alcohol, illegal drugs. By the way, did you know that the Seventh-day Adventist Church was premier in promoting the temperance movement? In fact, we have a, a, a passage from Ellen White where she says that we, she even made a political statement. Now, we know we don't mix politics and religion, right? But she said that if there is a government offe- official running for office who does not promote temperance, you should vote against them. And she goes on to say this, you should go vote even if it's the Sabbath. This is how important she believed the temperance issue was. And so supporting the women's temperance movement, now, of course, we don't subscribe to everything that those organizations uphold, but certainly the issue of temperance is something where we can actually um, lend voice to them. Illegal drugs. Now, we currently have in the United States a huge issue on prescription drugs and opioids. Opioids are the things like morphine that are given to to patients to ease their pain. Well, it's very easy to become addicted to morphine. There are a few seats up front. We'll just have to move these things. So... This, this issue is, is actually very, very important and we're um, really, the U.S. government is really looking, that's fine, thank you, looking for a lot of um, resources and, and help in battling this particular addiction. And of course there are many others as well, substance abuses. But again, as I said earlier, I want to really focus on what are called process or behavioral addictions. These are process or behavioral addictions. Now let's look at this list. This is a short list. This is a short list. Gambling, sex, kleptomania, computer or gaming, okay? Internet, again, pathological skin picking skin-picking, workaholism, okay? I'm sure there might be some people smiling or cringing. Food addictions or binge eating. Exercise, again, shopping. How about ministry? Is it possible that ministry can be an addiction? You know, as we heard during the divine service, if we are doing things out of our own works that could actually maybe be a symptom of a ministry addiction knowledge and power how about knowledge and power do we know people who are addicted to knowledge or to power and also relationships now that is a very important one Um, And we're going to talk about one type of emotional or relationship addiction later on. But it is possible that people are addicted to relationships. And I think this is an important one to talk about because we live in a world where we are so interconnected, aren't we? We are hyper-connected, and yet we are so separated, aren't we? So that's an important one, too. Okay, if we summarize this, again, that was a short list, but we could basically say that you can be addicted to anything that we feel we cannot live without. And And it leads us to live an unbalanced lifestyle regardless of the harm it causes to us or to others. I just cannot live without watching this TV show. And I will stay up till 2 a.m. watching, binging on this TV show. Because when I go to the office, they're going to be talking about it. You know, or I just cannot give up this exercise. I, I actually have a friend, a good friend that I used to work with who is an ultra triathlete. And I've told him several times, you know you're addicted to exercise. Um, And he says, yeah, I know I am. You know, and we're going to talk about how addiction happens and and why it is that we can be addicted to things that are even good for us, okay? So leads to an unbalanced lifestyle, regardless of the harm it causes. So what is an addiction? This is the definition from the American Society of Addictions Medicine, they say addiction is a primary, meaning that's the, that's the main health issue the person is facing. It's a chronic disease, we saw that already, of what it, what's involved here? Brain, reward, motivation, memory, and all the other things that happen along with that. It sounds rather complex. We'll look at some of that. Now, dysfunction in these brain circuits leads to these different things. Biological, okay, so your physical body, manifestations. Psychological, okay, your emotions. Social, how we interact with others. And, interestingly, spiritual manifestations. Now, these are the people who are not religious, but they're saying that there is a spiritual component to addictions. And they go on to say that these manifestations are reflected in an individual pathologically pursuing reward and or relief by substance use and other behaviors. So those two types of addictions, substance abuse, behavior. Okay. So they go on to say, These are some of the things, those manifestations that they were talking about. These are some of the things we see. The inability to consistently abstain. So in other words, okay, I can give up watching that TV show for two weeks, but I'm back to it, you know, as soon as the new season opens, or whatever it may be. Impairment in behavioral control. They're just not able to get themselves together. You know, they're not able to just really control their what they do. It's not that they're meaning to do bad things. Craving, of course, diminished recognition of significant problems. They start to justify in their mind and it doesn't seem that bad what they're doing. They're not able to really see that this is a problem. Significant problems with their behavior, with Interpersonal relationships. Again, we're seeing that social component come up over and over again. And a dysfunctional emotional response. So what's affected? Your body, your brain, your emotions, how you relate with others. Like other chronic diseases, addiction often involves cycles of relapse and remission. In other words, they may go through a time where they are free from the addiction, but they're very likely to actually fall back into the addictive behavior again. And and in the next section, we will talk a little bit more about that. Without treatment or engagement in recovery activities, addiction is progressive. It It gets worse over time and can result in disability or premature death. Is this a problem? This is absolutely a problem. Disability, poor quality of life, and certainly premature death. These are big problems for us to worry about. Um, Okay. Now, usually what they say is uh, they want to see three or more of these different symptoms happening in a a person over a 12-month period. Um, This is part of the diagnosis. Uh, Tolerance to the substance, in other words, it takes more to get the same high, okay? They're, they're, you know, at first they start with just a little bit, but they need more and more and a greater dose and a more intense dose in order to get the same um, emotional or physical high. Withdrawal, you take it away, they stop taking it, and they have symptoms. Kind of like when you stop drinking coffee for a few days and you get the headaches, right? Okay. I just had to throw that in there. Um, they use in larger amounts than intended. They didn't intend to use that much, but they just couldn't stop themselves. They desire um, to have to, to cut down, but they have unsuccessful attempts at actually stopping. And they spend a lot of time procuring the substance. Now, I mentioned this morning that I am a dietitian by by training, and I did um, actually counsel with with many of my patients, some of whom probably were very close to have a food, food addiction. And something that you see is that they're often thinking about, okay, how am I going to get the food? That's the question. Where am I going to get this? But if I change my diet, how am I going to get the food? So there's this preoccupation of where am I going to get it? How am I going to get it? Um, and there's a decline or an elimination of significant social work and recreational activities. They're withdrawing from society. Okay. So an addiction can alter the functioning of the chemical pathways in the brain. We'll see a little bit of that. And can artificially create pleasurable states. This is why you get addicted to it, because it makes you feel good. The problem is that it is a temporary feel good. It's not long-term, it's not fulfilling, and the end result is that you actually feel worse than you did before. This is what uh, makes an addiction really important to talk about. Because sometimes we may go to the extent of saying, well, if it makes you feel good, you shouldn't do it. But you know, it's really not a bad thing necessarily to feel good. Did God give you taste buds? Why? So you can enjoy the food, right? So it can be a pleasurable experience. Now, is it a problem if we are driven by our taste buds and not by reason and what we know is good and bad, right? There's the problem. When things are taken to excess and... Um, I know we do have some young children here. The intimate relationship between a husband and wife is that bad. Did God create a husband and wife to have that capability? But when it's taken to excess or taken outside of the bounds that he has given, then it becomes a problem, right? So God created us to be able to enjoy things. He wants us to enjoy. So let's not demonize people because they're trying to feel good. And we'll see why it is they're trying to feel good. The problem is when it gets out of control or when it becomes the driving factor. Okay, the five stages of addiction. There are five stages. One, experimentation. Now, this is probably what you heard when you were you know, a a little kid in elementary school, just say no, right? Say no to drugs or whatever. Because we know that one little taste might precipitate future use. And we we actually know, um, I think I have this on here, that younger people, when you experiment at a younger age, you're much more likely to develop that into an addiction. But the experiment... Okay, I'm just gonna take one little gulp of alcohol. It's it's a wedding, my friend's wedding. I'm just gonna try a little bit of the champagne, whatever it is. I'm just gonna watch that that risque TV show just for five minutes. Okay, experimentation. So we want to. Uh, this is often a stage that we we may not notice other people are experimenting because it doesn't necessarily alter their behavior or anything like that. And we wanna watch out for um, reasons that people may give, sort of excuses that they may give for for trying something something like this. The next stage is regular use. So this is when they start incorporating this into everyday life. Um, They're drinking every day. They're watching whatever every day. They're on, dare I say it, social media every day, okay? And this may be difficult to discover also because people might be pretty good at hiding their daily habits. Or it may be the point where we are starting to notice that this is becoming problematic. Maybe they're starting to participate in the behavior and not participating in other important activities of life. The third stage is risky use. And this, now everybody defines risky differently. So that's a challenge in knowing when a person is at risky use. But their behavior begins to alarm you. It's like, what? What? I can't believe they just did that. What's going on? This is usually when we start noticing it and we get concerned. But this is stage three already. And it's important at this point to discover ways to help before the problem escalates. This is where we can actually intervene and make some significant, um, give them significant help that isn't necessarily medical or treatment, you know, clinical kind of care. But once they get past this point, number four is dependence. This is where they just cannot survive without it. And at this point, the chemical uh, changes and physiological changes that have happened in the brain are so well ingrained in their system that it's going to take a lot to break them from this, to free them from this. Treatment options at this point are really, really important. Very important that they are getting the treatment because, again, remember, it's psychological changes that have been happening over time. This has happened over a period of time. Nobody becomes an addict overnight. I should say probably 99% of people. Okay. Some people do, but it has had a ground in an earlier time period and earlier exposures. And so we really need to get them professional help at this point. To, to free them. And the last stage is addiction, is what we really call addiction. And it's continual abuse um, that will continue to lead to the addiction. This is where progression gets worse and worse and worse. And this is really, I mean, this is, at this stage, people may need to actually go to live-in centers. I mean, they may need, you know, medical treatments, um, medication treatments. This is very intense. Now, the process of these five stages is very individual. It's very individual, and it can be affected by the user genetics. There is a genetic predisposition to some um, addictions, particularly if you think about um, alcohol. Okay, if you think about alcohol, Uh, biology, personality, age of onset of use, again, earlier, starting earlier on, means you're more likely to become addicted. And expectations, expectations that they may have of themselves, others may have of them as well. Now the drug itself, how potent is the drug? What are the concentrations they're using? How, um, uh, what is the effect of the drug itself? And then the environment, again, social. Social setting is an important factor in how and when a person we will go through these stages of addiction. Group expectations, that's that, expectations from others, and then cultural context. Now this is really key for us as a church body because this is our opportunity. This is our opportunity right here to really do something positive. Let's talk a little bit about the physiology of addiction. Your brain, our brain, everyone's brain, has a pleasure center that God created us with. This is that place that feels good. It gets triggered when happy things are going on, okay? This this is where um, the addiction begins to work. Now, researchers Peter Milner and James Olds, in 1954, they did a research study using rats. And in their study, what they did was they connected some electrodes to the rat, and every time the rat went to a certain part of the cage, they stimulated this this area, the pleasure center, with an electrical current. And what they thought is that that would not be a good thing to the rat. The rat would not like that. So the rat would stay away from that area of the cage. They would learn that going here gives me this feeling, and I don't like it, I'm going to stay away. But very interestingly, what they found is the rats actually liked that area. They liked that stimulation. They liked feeling good. Anybody else like feeling good? So this was in the limbic system, which controls your emotion, behavior, and memory. So the rats returned to that part of the cage over and over again, despite the fact that they were getting an electrical shock basically, but it felt good. So they did it over and over again. Now, later on, what they did is that they actually allowed the rat to self stimulate. There was a a bar and the rat just had to push the bar to get the current. And so the rat would stand there hitting the bar because it liked that stimulation. And even when the rat was hungry and it was given the option of eating food or the stimulation, you know what they chose? The stimulation. The food was not as pleasurable because it wasn't directly hitting that certain area of the brain the rats wanted the immediate gratification. And isn't that the same with us? Whether or not we have an addiction, right? The faster we can get what we want, the better, right? So, so this is where we started realizing that we actually have portions of our brain that want to feel good and that make us feel good. So, a little bit of brain physiology here. The nucleus accumbens septi is critically involved in addiction behavior, and it's right around here, right under the prefrontal cortex. Now, you've probably heard about the frontal cortex, but it's pretty close by. All addictive chemicals and behaviors are known to affect that area, every single one we know affects this area of the brain. So there is a physiological response happening in the brain. In fact, if we look here at what is happening, you've heard of dopamine. What is dopamine known as? The feel good hormone, right? That's the hormone that actually is working in this area. And what happens normally, I'm sorry, you guys can't maybe not be able to see this, but there is dopamine floating around, just a little bit, floating around between the cells. Okay, here's one cell talking to this cell, and the dopamine floats around, and when the dopamine attaches to the cell, it stimulates that feel good. Now, with something like cocaine or other drugs or addictive substances or behaviors, you get a rush of dopamine into this area. And this is all happening in that, um, that nucleus accumbens. You get a rush of dopamine there, so you're hyper-stimulating, and you're getting a greater response and, and stimulation for those feel-good um, rewards. Now, the orbital frontal cortex, which is close by and under the prefrontal cortex, this Uh, controls our impulses so do you think it's important to have control over our impulses Yeah. yeah so this is what this guy does it also helps us recognize social and cultural mores in other words what is socially acceptable or not this area of the brain helps us to realize that would that be helpful if it's functioning well, would that be helpful in preventing addictive behaviors, you think? And also the ability to appreciate the consequences of your actions. How important is that? And we talked about earlier, someone who's addicted, they're not able to recognize what the consequences are. They don't have that clear judgment anymore. So, so that area is not functioning as well. The prefrontal cortex, we know, is the executive function. This is where decisions are made. This is where pros and cons are weighed. It prioritizes behavior. It adapts to change, and interestingly, it works for delayed gratification. Oh, bother. Let's talk about delayed gratification. Here is a research study of little children You've probably, you may have seen videos of this. Little children put in a room, one by one, and you sit them down at a table, and there's a plate, and there's one little marshmallow sitting on the plate. And you sit the boy or the girl down, and you say, okay, you just sit here. I'm going to go to the other room, and I'll be back. Now, there's a marshmallow here, but when I come back, I'll give you one more marshmallow, but you can't eat this one. You have to wait till I come back. Okay? So you can eat this one now, or when I come back, you get two. So the adult leaves the room. It's interestingly that two-thirds of the children give in immediately. You're not even out the door, <laughs> and the marshmallows. And when you see videos of this, you'll actually see some of the children fondling <laughs> the marshmallows. <laughs> And just looking wistfully at it. I think there's one that even smells it, you know? But one-third of them can actually resist the temptation and get a second one later. So delayed gratification. Maybe this is something we need to practice a little bit more. Strengthen that part of the brain. So physiology, again, there are many neurotransmitters involved in this the dopamine that we talked about, also serotonin, um, opioid peptides, these are opioid um, molecules, norepinephrine or nor- noradrenaline. This might explain why exercise can be an addiction. Okay, adrenaline, excess an- adrenaline. Um, and the brain areas, again, the limbic system, the nucleus accumbens, and we didn't talk about the globus, but we'll we'll move on. We have a lot more to cover here. Okay, so let's um, – okay, I like this quote. This is a quote from Dr. Turbin, Torben Berglund. He is the health ministry director for the Trans-European Division and a psychiatrist, so he has worked with people with addictions um, a great deal. And it's, he says that addiction is a result – Of attempts to fill real needs with fake fillers at the bottom line this is what an addiction comes from substances and these fake fillers are substances or behaviors that for a time appear to provide what the person is seeking but in the end it cannot truly fulfill them and this vicious vicious cycles are then created Since the fake fillers cannot truly fulfill the person is left. What frustrated and empty out of lack of true fillers. Here's a key out of lack of true fillers. The person turns to the addictive substance or behavior to an extent that it is harmful to functioning and the quality of life. And I want to read here. Because there is some biblical grounds for this. In Jeremiah chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Jeremiah chapter 2, and verses 11 through 13, it says here, Has a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? Okay? Changing from the true God to those who are not gods where am i but my people have changed their glory from for that which does not profit that which does not truly fulfill be astonished o ye heavens at this and be horribly afraid be ye very desolate saith the lord for my people have committed two evils they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, people in this world are dying for a lack of knowledge of God. And I don't mean just superficial knowledge. Oh, there's a God. But a truly intimate, fulfilling, personal relationship with God. And so what they are doing is they're trying to fill it with fake gods, if you will. Some people turn to alcohol. Others turn to smoking. Some may turn to relationship after relationship. Others may turn to shopping. Whatever it may be, there is a void that they know they have, and yet they don't know how to fill it. So they fill it with what seems to be the easiest thing. We need to remember the person. People do not become addicts because they are bad people. We wanna remember this. It's not because, hello, all have sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They become addicts because they are suffering. The addictive substance or behaviors relieve suffering caused by too much feelings or not enough feelings. Interesting. The emotional baggage here. They work short term, these addictive substances or behaviors, they work short term but long term they cause much more harm than good. So, who is at risk? Who is at risk of developing an addiction? Despite advances in understanding of the process, at present, there is no certainty as to who will become addicted. Wow. And this is from, I forget which website I took this from. It might have been the government's drug facts page. There's no certainty. We can't just line people up and say, yeah, you're prone to, you're going to become an addict, you're, we just don't know. Because look at how complex the process is. What we do know, that there are factors that do affect our risk of becoming addicted. And this is important because these are the areas that we can actually do something about early life exposures, I mentioned this earlier, that frontal lobe, when when does your frontal lobe actually maturate? When does it become more mature? 30, 30 years of age, okay. So (laughs) how many people are getting into trouble before they're 30? (laughs) So during those young adolescent preteen years when our young people, I'm so thankful for the ones who are here this weekend. But when those young people are in that experimental stage, aren't they? Aren't they trying things out? We may not know it, but very possibly they could be trying things out. As, remember that the addiction affects the brain itself, and the morphology of the brain, the connections in the brain. So if they are trying these things out during those ages when the brain is still forming and maturing, it's much more likely for them to become addicted. Genetic factors. These account for half of the likelihood that an individual will develop an addiction. I believe this was specifically for um, alcohol. Environmental factors. Inter- these interact with the person's biology and affect the extent to which genet- genetic factors exert their influence. Your environment does, in fact, affect your genetics. I know um, one, one person says, genetic, your genes load the gun, but your lifestyle pulls the trigger. Your environment is part of your lifestyle. What affects your lifestyle? I mean, we just need to go a few hours down the road to a certain big city, right? And to see what is the environment that these people are struggling in when their very life is at danger. And what are they using to cope? Because they have nothing else. Mission to the cities has an important role. Resiliencies. We'll talk about resiliencies um, the next session. These affect the extent to which the genetic predisposition can lead to that behavior and other manifestations of addiction. So, we'll talk about resi- resiliencies a little bit more. And then, culture. You know, we all have our own culture, don't we? Looking around this room, I love seeing the, the diversity of culture. It's going to be like this in heaven. Every single culture has beautiful things about it, every single culture has some things that should be changed to be quite frank, all, all cultures, because not one is a perfect representation of heaven's culture. Now, you know, God (laughs) brought the church to life so that we as a church could be the representation of the heavenly culture, didn't he? Because he doesn't want you to be bound by your cultures of this world that you just happen to be born into but he wants us to be transformed into the culture of heaven. But why is it that even in our churches, we could be promoting addictions? Just go to a board meeting. (laughs) Just sit at a potluck table and hear the discussion between should you have cheese or not at the table you know and and I'm not I don't want to um, minimize issues and conversations nor do I want to aggrandize you know just simple conversations but maybe we need to be considering what is our effect what is my effect on the others in this church am I a saver of life unto life right here in the church. Um, Did I skip one? Okay, another important risk factor are what, what are called adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. Adverse childhood experiences. It seems that these are really a very strong driving factor when it comes to addictions. So what are ACEs? There are three types, abuse, Now this could be physical abuse, emotional or sexual abuse during childhood. Neglect, neglect. And this could be physical or emotional neglect. Maybe we should say spiritual neglect too. You know, where we are not intentionally caring for the child, we're not intentionally demonstrating our love and our care for them. Or we're not doing it in a way that they understand. We think, I'll just leave it at that, family challenges. We know that children who are living in a family that is facing severe challenges, such as mental illness in the family, a loved one who's incarcerated, or the mother treated violently, if the mother is treated violently, or divorce in the family, there can be a greater likelihood that they may have to may, that they may resort to an addiction to find coping. Sixty percent of adults, or more, so more than fifty percent of adults report that they have they experienced at least one of these aces during their childhood. Two thirds of the population have had suffering in their childhood years, those formative years where all the world is supposed to be rosy and full of possibility, but they they struggled. They had a serious, serious pain in their childhood. And we know from the science that preventing these ACEs, look at what, what can result when we actually prevent these ACEs. We reduce the levels of early sex behavior in young people, unintended teen pregnancies, smoking, binge drinking, illicit drug use, violence, incarceration, and I love this, poor diet. We can actually reduce the poor diet simply by caring for our young people. codependency. So I want to spend um, the last little bit of time talking about two particular types of addictions that, um, that these are behavior or process addictions. And these are ones that maybe we don't um, really talk about, or we're not very much aware of. um, But but let's just go over this. By the way, let me do a time check. We're here till what time? Till 4? Okay. We might be done a little early, so that's okay. You can get some exercise. Okay, codependency. Okay. You may have a problem with codependency. Now, I'm not encouraging you to self-diagnose right now, but some awareness points, okay? You may have a problem with codependency if you are easily absorbed by the pain and problems of others. I remember meeting um, a lady once uh, a few years ago who I I believe, I, I think I was working in Guam at the time, and there was some kind of a hurricane or tragic disaster here in the US. And every day she would say to me, I feel so bad for them. I just keep praying for them. I just—I mean, it just tears me apart what they're going through. And you know, we should feel bad for people who are going through these problems, absolutely. But when it consumes us, when it's what we're thinking about over and over again, I feel so bad, I feel so bad, I feel so bad, but we're not doing anything about it, you know? We're addicted to those emotions of feeling for someone. You submerge yourself in fixing or rescuing needy people. Oh, boy. Now, it's not a bad thing to help people. We should be helpful. But when this is, I've got to go help them. They're not asking for your help. I need to go help them anyway. (laughs) You know, we, we need to learn to regulate even how much help we give to people. We should absolutely help, but... There's a time for everything, right? You depend on sources outside of yourself for meaning, identity, and value. Now, as we talked about this morning, our identity, our value, our purpose comes ultimately from God. That's not what we're talking about here. Recognizing that is what gives us ultimate meaning and purpose. But when we are depending on another human being, and this is especially what leads to relationship addictions, it's that I, I just cannot be without a relationship. I have to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or maybe several. <laughs> you know, I, I just cannot live without somebody texting me all the time. I have to have 50 people like my post on Facebook, otherwise I feel like a failure. And I'm being a little bit silly just to demonstrate, you know, (laughs) a little bit of how, what we may be missing, what we may be missing. But this can be very serious, too. Codependency is really a, a pretty serious issue. You take care of other people's pain and problems while ignoring your own. How many of us internalize our problems? And we say, I will pray and it will be okay. Prayer has power, but God does not want us to ignore the problems and to suppress them and to pretend like they're not there. That's not how we get healing. This maybe is a tendency for a lot of Christians, is that we feel like, you know, it's going to be okay. God will take care of it. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Absolutely, that is a fact. But the truth of the matter is that God does not want you to put yourself in danger. He's not calling us. we, We cannot call ourselves to be martyrs. Only God can determine who's a martyr. But we are so ready to take care of other people while we ignore our own issues. And maybe this is also part of the addiction to ministry, right? We're, we're, so, we're going to serve in the church. We're going to do multiple, we're, everything that the, the nominating committee asks us to do, we're going to say yes. We're going to do every single thing that comes to us. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll share a little story. I actually had a moment like this when I first moved to Loma Linda to be a student there. I, um, I came from being very active in my church, and I loved it. I came to Loma Linda, and I said, I'm not taking a single responsibility. After about six months, I said, okay, I'm getting spiritually fat I need to exercise my spiritual muscles. I need to get involved in ministry. And so I actually decided to fast and pray every Friday until God told me what ministry he wanted me to do. Within a matter of three weeks, I had four offers, four. I said, I'm stopping. (laughs) I can't fast and pray anymore. This is too much. But I loved ministry. It was such a powerful experience to me to be part of ministry. I, I don't like being up front, I, I like the backstage. Well, it just so happened those four opportunities, I accepted three of them. I said, I'll be moderate. <laughs> right? I'll accept three. I thank God that one of the three that I accepted fell through. And nothing happened of that. So I had two ministry responsibilities. And that was, that was the right amount for me at that time. But I was so driven that I remember even thinking, which of these should I accept? I just kept thinking, well, I can make time for that one. I'll just, I can squeeze. I mean, I was a full-time student. But sure, I'll take three ministry responsibilities. I'll do it. But you know, we have to realize our limitations, that we are human, and that even when it comes to ministry, I've learned to say if there's nobody to do the job, let the job go undone, and let God raise up the laborers. Sometimes what we need to do is pray for the laborers rather than being the laborer ourselves. Okay? Now, if you're not doing any ministry, that's another problem, (laughs) okay? But we're not talking about that today. So you help others at your own expense or the expense of your family. This um, probably is a big issue for our pastors, our ministers, right? Sometimes they sacrifice their own families for the sake of the good of the church. And we as a church have a responsibility to not make them feel guilty when they take a day off or when they spend time with their family or when they don't answer our phone call at 2 a.m. <laughs> we need to allow them to have the rest that they also need. Another um, way you may have a codependency issue is you say yes when you mean no. You say yes. When I don't want to do it, but okay, <laughs> I'll do it. You know, it's okay to say no. That it's It's okay, everybody together, it's okay to say no. Okay, great. Don't say no to God, okay? That's the problem. But if God is leading you to do something, then he's got everything else under control. All we need to make sure is that he's the one asking us to do it. It's not our own internal drive codependence what is it interesting two or more sick people getting worse together <laughs> it's just we're we're all just in this together making e- each other worse and worse Originally, the word codependence was used to describe a person whose life was affected as a result of their involvement with another person who had a chemical dependency. Okay? They were an al- alcoholic or a drug addict. Therefore, the, the two people together were considered to be co-alcoholics or co-addicts, codependents. But what it is, is it's a pattern of painful dependence on people, substances, approval to find your safety, your self-worth, and your identity. There is no human being on the earth who can give us self-worth. Not a single human being has enough self-worth on their own to share with us. Our worth comes from God. And if he he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, we just need to accept that and say, thank you, God. I don't understand it, but I'm going to accept it and live by it. Here's the good news is that recovery from codependence is possible. Codependence is the disease of being an immature child in an adult body, right? As children... Do we want our children to have a level of dependence on us? Absolutely, because that's why God gave us to them. We are here to help them guide and grow and understand and learn. But during every stage of childhood, should there be increasing independence? And if we are training them well, that independence will be a good thing. It will not be a rebellious independence but it will be being able to think on their own. I how many of you how many of you are parents? Okay, a good number of you. How many of you are either a, an aunt or an uncle? You've seen some young kids grow up. Now, when you when you hear that young person say something, and you're like, "Where did you come up with that?" Right? It's their own brains are gathering information and processing, and formulating new thoughts. And that's a beautiful process to see. That is the kind of independence we want to help them learn. And there's a different level of independence throughout the different stages of growth. Codependence is the pain in adulthood that comes from being wounded in childhood. And it leads to a high probability of relationship problems and compulsive behaviors. Codependence, here goes again, the four components of addiction. It's the social, emotional, emotional, and spiritual pathology that occurs when children grow up in an environment characterized by high-stress, low-nurture. High-stress, low-nurture. How many of our children in the world grow up in high-stress environments without anybody to care for them and to demonstrate that care? And in order to recovery, they need low stress and high nurture. So recovery is possible, even for codependents. Here are some of the things that um, people may may, um, experience when they have low self-worth. I have difficulty making decisions, okay? We have a hard time. Do you want pasta or do you want potatoes? Do you want to go to this Ivy League school or that Ivy League school? I mean, it may be very simple decisions, but we're we're dependent on someone else to make the decision for us sometimes. I judge everything I think, say, or do harshly or as never good enough. I just gave a wonderful uh, sermon at church. It just wasn't good. Everybody says it was good, but it wasn't good. You know, what? what is it? I, I, um, I helped organize this wonderful event, and the community f- came out, and they all said they were all blessed by it, but it just wasn't good enough. I can't believe I messed up. You know, we even... We're all going to have failures, right? We're all going to have something that we're not very good at. Often the problem arises when we compare ourselves to other people. But they have different talents than we do. We we shouldn't compare. Low self-worth. I am embarrassed to receive recognition, praise, or gifts. Now, If you're getting too much of this, you know, that that can be a problem, too. But even just good, solid, heartfelt, you know, nothing wrong with it. You did a great job. Thank you so much for for taking care of the potluck. You washed those dishes so well. You know, we should be accepting of those kinds of simple compliments from people. It becomes a problem when we're overly, you know, praiseworthy of people, right? I do not ask others to meet my needs or desires. And this is a problem with people in relationships often is that I give and I give and I give. Well, what are you getting out of the relationship? Well, we're friends. I mean, I just, I just don't ask because, you know, he's so busy and, you know, he does all of this stuff for other people. But what are you getting out of it? maybe we don't think that we are worth the effort but we are I value others approval of my thinking my feelings my behavior even over my own or I do not perceive myself as a lovable or worthwhile person now it's it's there's a little bit of a conflict I believe in the Christian mind because we know that we are not what God created us to be. And every time we fail, we are not what he wants us to be. But there's a difference between recognizing our need for God and recognizing that other people have value on us. Does that make sense? Let me try to say that again. There's a difference between realizing the worth that God has placed on every single one of us because he would have died even if we were the only sinner. And he is preparing a mansion for you. Yeah, for everybody else too, but for you. It's got your name on it. Your crown has your name, not anybody else's name. There's a difference between recognizing the skills that he has given you, the talents that he has entrusted to you, the abilities that he wants you to develop, and receiving praise and honoring and glory from others. Does that make sense? There's a difference between using everything that God has given us to benefit the world for his glory and using them for our own self, our own selfish needs. So we, we want to have a high sense of our worth without getting to the place where we are putting ourselves above. Does that make sense? I will be honest with you. That's a a mental gymnastics that, that even I have to do, what does that really mean? How does that really look? But I think it's an important conversation that we need to have with God. Lord, what does it mean for me to accept your call for my life? What does that mean when I'm not supposed to be pushing myself out there? I'm not supposed to be promoting myself. What is, how does that look like? I think those are important conversations for us to have with God. Okay, the other type of addiction I want to talk about is food addiction, very briefly. Now, food addiction is interesting because some people argue that it's not a true addiction. We really can't call this a clinical addiction. But at the same time, there are some similarities that we see between food addictions and and these other compulsive behaviors. So let's look at food addiction. There is for a true food addiction, a biochemical dependency on food. Did you know that your brain likes certain types of food? Yeah. You know what they're called? Fat, sugar, and salt. Your body loves those. And some of you, one more than the other, If you're unfortunately like me, you like them all. (laughs) So fat, salt, and sugar. And you know why we know that your body likes these? It's because our friendly food manufacturers have done some wonderfully intricate research studies because they want to know what will help you buy what they're producing. And so they have done the science to know what is the proportion of sugar, fat, and salt that needs to go into that potato chip so they can tell you with 100% guarantee that you can't eat just one. They know, they can say that because they have the science behind it. So the food that we eat, um, if you remember one of the pictures we showed earlier on Food also produces the dopamine in our brain. But when we have it in the right amounts, again, that's part of the good pleasure that God wants us to have. So what are the experiences that we have with food addictions? A physical craving, a mental obsession. I mentioned before my patients who were obsessed with the thoughts of where they're going to get their next meal. And distortion of basic instincts and willpower. You know you don't need to eat the second slice of chocolate cake. You know that having a bowl of ice cream every single night is not what your body needs. You know X, Y, Z. You fill in the blank, okay? So am I food addicted? Well, here are some things that we may want to consider. Is there a history of diet and regaining weight. You go on the weight loss roller coaster, up and down, up and down. Is there a history of psychotherapy but that has no effect on your behavior? So you've actually tried to seek help for this problem but it really has not affected your behavior. And are there foods that you cannot live without or not willing to give up? Everybody could probably (laughs) subscribe to that one, right? There are foods that I just can't live without this food. Are there foods that I cannot stop eating? You know, your body was created with this amazing mechanism to actually tell you when you when you should stop eating. And there are hormones that are produced. There are sensations, physical sensations that are produced. But the problem is that sometimes we don't, we don't hear those cues. We're not a- attuned to the cues that say, okay, you're full, you can stop eating now. Or where our body is so um, used to eating foods that are not good for you that it just those, those mechanisms are not working anymore. There are certain types of foods that actually promote your feeling of fullness And your ability to recognize that and to stop eating, there are other foods that depress that sensation. And we don't have time to do a a lecture on nutrition, but basically, eat whole foods. Okay? We'll stop there. Okay. Symptoms about eating, and I have seen some of this in previous patients. Lying about what they eat to others and themselves. I, my patients lied to me all the time. <laughs> it's just, you know, you, anybody you ask, what did you have for, for breakfast? Oh, I had a grapefruit, you know. And, you know, the donut was just a, you know. Um, I always appreciated the patients who said, I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> it's like, great. So lying about it to others or themselves... Breaking moral codes, stealing food, uh, things like that. Powerlessness over food um, progresses. It gets worse over time. Feeling numb, high, or drugged after eating. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Numb, high, or drugged. (laughs) Food coma coming on. (laughs) Maybe we ate a little too much. Okay. Or anxiety, and these are the serious ones, right? Anxiety, depression, sleepiness, inability to sleep, when you get rid of that food item, withdrawal symptoms again. So the food and food in the brain, a little bit of physiology here. Your hypothalamus part of the brain is what controls your it's your food control center. It it controls your hunger and fullness, your appetite, your metabolism, hormones, sleep cycles, homeostasis is, is the regulation of your body, keeping your body at a normal state over time. Serotonin, we mentioned serotonin about general addictions, right? We mentioned this. It's a neurotransmitter similar to dopamine. Neurotransmitter meaning it works in brain cells low levels of serotonin are associated with depression and anger and carbohydrates can increase your serotonin levels. So simple carbs, here's a little nutrition fact, simple carbs are things like refined grains, white rice, white bread, those are simple carbs. Anything that came in a crinkly package is probably a simple carb, refined sugars. These can increase your serotonin, but remember, they have those addictive properties, those, those, um, crinkly packages, especially fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, tofu. These all increase tryptophan, which then increases your serotonin. And these do it naturally, and these do it to a point that is not harmful. And exercise and sunshine also can increase your serotonin naturally. Dopamine, we talked about this. It's responsible for movement, pleasure, reward, emotion planning. Um, It may have a role in in some of these um, diseases that we're seeing in older ages, uh, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. So many of these mood disorders that are affected by these, these hormones Uh, Here we go. Cocaine, methamphetamine, caffeine, insulin, sugar can all work on dopamine. Drug abuse or obesity can decrease your sensitivity of your dopamine reward system. What does that mean? You need more dopamine to get the same feel-good sensations. So you're going to be dependent on more and more of the drug or even in its cases of obesity. Okay, this. <laughs> this is a, I, I don't know what this is. <laughs> it's, it's a smoking, smoking gun, that's for sure. It's a fish and a chicken with a cigarette. And I put this on here because I want to very quickly talk about the connection that we may not realize between addictive substances and food. Okay? You ready for this? Okay, a little bit of nutrition here. There was a study, research study done by Duke University of 209 smokers. Now, these people were chain smokers, more than one pack of cigarettes a day so these was high high consumers and they had smoked for an average of 21 years 21 years now they were asked just to list the foods that either enhance or worsen their smoking experience either your smoking was better when you ate these foods or your smoking ugh, it just wasn't as good when you ate other foods what did we find They found that 70% said certain foods did make their food taste, certain foods did make the cigarettes taste better. There were foods that increased their desire for smoking, basically, right? You wanna know what those foods were? You sure? Good thing we're here at Pine Springs Ranch for a couple more days. Caffeinated drinks, alcoholic drinks, and meat increase their desire to smoke. Well, I shouldn't say the desire, but the taste of the cigarettes. So, of course, that will then increase their desire, right? Why give it up when it tastes so good? Anything on there look like you might find it in somebody's refrigerator, you know? Okay, okay. All right. What about the other side? By the way, these foods also increase your body weight. Okay. These are the, well, okay. We'll do nutrition some other time. Now, 45% of the same people said that there were other foods that actually made their cigarettes taste worse. Do you wanna know what these are? (laughs) Okay, let's see. Oh, fruits, vegetables, water, and even 100% fruit juice. These made the cigarettes taste worse. So if, by the way, these foods also help you control your body weight. These are the foods that also help control your hunger and your feelings of satiety. These are the good stuff. Okay. So... Isn't it amazing how God created this package meal for us that promotes life, promotes health, and also promotes avoiding harmful things? You know, when God makes things, he's got a whole big picture planned. His plans are greater than our plans. His ways are greater than our ways. There is no way you could put all of this into a pill. Absolutely no way. And it would be too expensive anyway. It's really about coming back to God's original plan for us. You know, as we talk about addictions, God didn't want us to be caught up with anything that enslaves us, enslaves our mind, our emotions, our heart. But we live in a broken world, don't we? We, we sadly gave up that power. And every day as we make decisions, we are either giving up more power or we are claiming the power of God to set us free. As I said earlier, very likely that half of the people in this room are struggling with an addiction of some type. The other half of us, maybe we just haven't gotten there yet. Or maybe we have been able to have the type of environment and experiences and growth and surrender that has just set us free. And I pray that that will ultimately be the experience for every single one of us, that freedom. If the sun makes you free, then are you free indeed? So we're gonna take a 10 minute break and then we're going to come back and talk about how to break free from re- addictions. What are those key things that we have that we can do to break from addictions and to help others do the same? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons,